there are many made-up holidays that somehow have found their way into being mentioned on this particular channel of programming as part of the introduction. For some reason, today is Clean Your Floors Day, though it's unclear who makes the money off of those greeting cards. But how clean are your floors? Are you a rebel without a broom, or are you a vacuum warrior? It's a very good thing that none of the rest of this installment of Charlottesville Community Engagement has anything to do with this particular topic, but I will have you know, I mopped mine yesterday in anticipation of this very important day. On today's show, so far there are no debates scheduled in the contested 5th Congressional District race, but Democrat Josh Throneberg wants to change that. Area home sales volumes have decreased, though the cost to buy a place to live continues to increase. Green County has hired a water and sewer director. Several area organizations have received funding from Virginia Humanities, including a project to tell the stories of PVCC students who have been or are in prison. And Albemarle County continues to review its comprehensive plan, and the seven-member planning commission got their chance to review growth management options late last month. In today's first Patreon-fueled shout-out, have you been thinking of converting your fossil fuel appliances and furnaces into something that will help the community reduce its greenhouse gas emissions? Your local energy nonprofit, LEAP, has launched a new program to guide you through the steps toward electrifying your home. Thermalize Virginia will help you understand electrification and connect you with vetted contractors to get the work done and help you find any rebates or discounts. Visit thermalizeva.org to learn more and to sign up. The Democratic candidate in the 5th District Congressional race has asked his opponent to agree to meet in person for a debate or other kind of campaign forum before the November 8th election. Josh Throneberg of Charlottesville became the candidate earlier this year, before the primary, when he was the only one to qualify for that ballot. He sent out a campaign video this morning. There's one question I get asked more than any other, and that is, when will the two of you debate? Throneberg addressed his comments directly to Good and said there were at least three organizations that would hold a campaign event and that he's accepted all three of them. But you have either rejected or ignored those invitations. And so I want to make things crystal clear. I, Josh Thromberg, challenge you, Representative Bob Good, to an in-person debate sometime between now and November the 8th. Good is seeking his second term in the House of Representatives, having defeated Cameron Webb in the last campaign in 2020. Candidate Good did participate in a September 9th, 2020 virtual campaign forum put on by the senior statesman of Virginia. You can take a listen to that whole event at the Charlottesville Podcasting Network. A request for comment is out to the Good campaign. The number of sales in the Charlottesville housing market continues to drop as the median sales price continues to climb. That's according to the latest report from the Charlottesville Area Association of Realtors. Here's one bullet point from the car home sales report for the second quarter. There were 1,380 homes sold in the car area in the second quarter. This is an 11% drop from the second quarter a year ago, which is 165 fewer sales. 
Carr's jurisdictional area is the same as the Thomas Jefferson Planning District, with the city of Charlottesville, as well as the counties of Albemarle, Fluvanna, Green, Louisa, and Nelson. The median sales price increased to $417,850, an 11% increase over the second quarter of 2021. Additionally, supply has increased, with 741 active listings in the area, a 28% increase over the same period in 2021. To put that increase into perspective, consider that the median sales price for the second quarter of 2018 was 301000 The report also covers several recent economic trends, such as steady job growth and low unemployment. Here's a section from the report. Several job sectors have fully recovered and have actually expanded since the start of the pandemic, including the professional and technical services sector and the federal government sector. The home ownership rate within these two job sectors tends to be relatively high, so growth in these sectors provides fuel for the housing market in Virginia. However, the leisure and hospitality sector continues to show signs of recovery. Mortgage rates are higher than last year, but have shown a slight decline from the end of June, when the average rate for a 30-year fixed mortgage was 5.7%. However, the report acknowledges the cooling effect of rates that have increased two percentage points so far this year. Sales volumes were down in all localities except Greene County, where there was a 33% increase in sales. There were 122 homes sold in that jurisdiction between April and June of this year, compared to 92 the same period the year before. The median sales price increased in all of the jurisdictions, but Nelson County saw the biggest jump in values from $285,000 in the second quarter of 2021 to $425,000 in the second quarter of 2022. Visit car.com to download the report, and what do you think? If you're a property owner, how does this change your views on what you may do with your own place? What about if you want to own? Does it change anything? Say something in the comments. Green County is preparing for anticipated population growth by expanding its urban water supply. Now, the locality has hired its first-ever water and sewer director. From a press release, Mr. Greg Lunsford will oversee the development of a team to operate Green County Water and Sewer Department as Green transitions out of the Rapidan Service Authority. Green County recently left the Rapidan Service Authority in order to build a reservoir that's already received permission from the U.S. Army Corps of Engineers. The idea is to impound White Run to create storage. Lunsford recently served as the town manager of Elkton in Rockingham County, where the release states he helped advance a water system upgrade. In green, he will lead the work to create a water and sewer ordinance to govern the new supply. The state agency that serves as the official Humanities Council for Virginia has made its latest round of grants to nonprofit organizations that seek to tell new stories about the people who have lived or will live in the Commonwealth. Here's a section from their About page on the website for Virginia Humanities. We want Virginians to connect with their history and culture, and in doing that, we hope we'll all get to know each other a little better. In all, Virginia Humanities awarded $153,200 to 18 organizations, including several in this general area. Here's what some of them are. 
The Catechus Corporation of Berkeley, California will get $10,000 for a project to build a website intended to tell the story of Barbara Johns and the 1951 student walkout in Prince Edward County to a larger audience across Virginia and the nation. James Madison University will get $5,400 towards a project called A Miserable Revenge, recovering 19th century black literature from the Shenandoah Valley. This will transcribe a handwritten novel by George Newman from around 1880. Newman was an African-American educator from the Winchester area. The Louisa County Historical Society will get $7,000 for a project called Representing Our Residents, African-American History at the Louisa County Historical Society. This will be a series of oral history interviews and public outreach activities. The National D-Day Memorial in Bedford will get $8,000 for a project called Someone Talked, a podcast of the National D-Day Memorial. This will include conversations between the prolific World War II historian John McManus and other scholars, and is intended and designed to reach and engage new audiences now that the generation that lived through World War II has passed. A project to add two Louisa County churches to the National Register of Historic Places received $3,000. Piedmont Virginia Community College will receive $10,000 for the PVCC Prison Creative Arts Project. The idea is to collect original writing from incarcerated PVCC students and then create a theatrical production based on the stories. The Kluge Rue Aboriginal Art Museum will get $8,250 to make three videos to introduce the Monacan Nation as custodians of the lands and waters in and around Charlottesville to serve as land acknowledgments. And finally, the Virginia Tech Foundation will receive $20,000 for a podcast series to be called Tribal Truths on the histories and cultures of state and federally recognized tribes in Virginia. To see the rest, go visit the release at Virginia Humanities. You're listening to Charlottesville Community Engagement, and in today's second subscriber-supported public service announcement, Camp Albemarle has for 60 years been a wholesome, rural, rustic, and restful site for youth activities, church groups, civic events, and occasional private programs. Located on 14 acres on the banks of the Mormons River near Free Union, Camp Albemarle continues as a legacy of being a civilian conservation corps project that sought to promote the importance of rural activities. Camp Albemarle seeks support for a plan to winterize the Hamner Lodge, a structure built in 1941 by the CCC and used by every fourth and fifth grade student in Charlottesville and Albemarle for the study of ecology for over 20 years. If this campaign is successful, Camp Albemarle could operate year-round. Consider your support by visiting campalbemarleva.org slash donate. One more long segment today, and it begins with a question from me. Is this the summer of 2022? Or is it the summer of AC44? AC44 is the name Albemarle County has given for the review of its comprehensive plan. That's a document that Virginia requires all localities to adopt and review every five years. Albemarle last updated its plan in 2015, and work got underway earlier this year on a review. Here is Tori Canalopoulos, a senior planner with Albemarle County. We're currently in phase one, plan for growth, where we are reviewing and evaluating the current growth management policy using lenses of equity, climate action, and capacity projections. 
At the end of this phase, staff and the consultants will have developed a draft vision for growth and resilience, on which new policy objectives will be written. The work so far has led to the development of seven growth management policies for the public to review and the supervisors to eventually choose. We are planning to have in-person and virtual roundtables and online opportunities in step three. The commission will then review the work in September, followed by a review by the Board of Supervisors. Discussions about what changes might come in the rural area will come during phase two of the comprehensive plan review. Several commissioners wanted to know if survey responses have done enough to capture a diversity of opinion. Here is Commissioner Julian Bivens. I did a deep dive on the last one that came out, and when I looked at the demographic, the demographics really trend white, upper class, or middle upper class, and extremely well, and extremely well educated. What I'm nervous about is that, that those responses then become the drivers for lots of decisions. Charles Rapp. The deputy director of the Department of Community Development said he expected participation to increase when the plan review gets into specifics. People are excited to get into specific topics, into the details of this plan. At this point, we're still at such a high level trying to figure out which those uh, avenues we're going to go down um, and which ideas we want to explore and what are those topics that, this, that we want to dive into. The commission also got an update on the build-out analysis of the county's existing capacity for new homes and businesses. The firm Kimley Horn has been hired to conduct that work. Canalopolis had several preliminary observations. In mixed-use developments, the residential component tends to build out first, and the non-residential component may not build out until years later. When factoring in site readiness and site selection criteria, there appears to be sufficient capacity for commercial and retail uses, but much less currently available for office and industrial uses. Another finding is that new developments are not being approved at the maximum amount possible, and that by-right developments also do not use all of the potential building space recommended in the existing comprehensive plan. The firm EPR has been hired to help develop the growth management options. Here's Vlad Gavrilovich with EPR. These were developed by the staff and the consultants after the first round of public input. They're not intended as picking one as the winner or the loser. They're intended to initiate discussion. Let's go through them. Here's Vlad Gavrilovich with option one. Applying more density and more infill development within the existing development areas and retaining and enhancing green infrastructure. Next option was um, looking in the development areas to adjust uh, the densities and reduce the maximum densities to more closely align with what people have actually been building at us. The third option would be to develop criteria for which the growth area might be adjusted. Looking at new criteria to identify when, where, and how development areas should be expanded. The next option was opportunities for non-residential development around the interchanges of I-64 to support job growth and economic development. Option five would explore the possibility of rural villages. Rural villages, uh, where you would promote small-scale commercial and service uses to nearby rural area residents. Number six was uh, looking at current service provisions and seeing if adjustments are needed to ensure equitable distribution of services, particularly health and safety services. The final option is to explore opportunities to promote forest retention and regenerative land uses in the rural area that support climate action goals. So those are the seven scenarios. 
A second round of community engagement went out with these results. We heard that the three options that best support climate action were regenerative land uses in the rural area, rural villages, and distribution of service provision. The three options that best support equity were service provision, rural villages, and providing more density and infill in the development areas with green infrastructure. For the accommodating growth lens, the top three options were rural villages, non-residential development at interstate interchanges, and service provision. In their comments, the commission had a lot to say. Commissioner Karen Firehawk said she saw the provision of infrastructure to support development areas as an equity issue. People should be able to walk to a park or a trail or a healthy environment near to where they live and not have to get in the car and drive a really long way to find something green. Commissioner Lonnie Murray lives in the rural area, and he hopes the growth management strategy does not undo work that has been done to date. I think it's important to have a concept of do no harm in the rural area and not lose the services that we have. As an example, he said he wants the county to stop paving gravel roads in the rural areas. Bivens urged the commission to look ahead to the next redistricting after the 2030 census, when he said the urban areas will continue to have more of the county's expected population. And if we do not increase the development area, Samuel Miller will end up at a point in the near future of being the largest land mass district in Albemarle County. And so from an equity standpoint, one has to say, is that where we want to go as a county? The Weldon Cooper Center for Public Service currently projects Albemarle's population as increasing to 124,016 people by 2030, up from 112,395 in the U.S. Census of 2020. Commissioner Fred Missel said he wanted to know more information about how capital infrastructure works together to support development. You know, how does, for example, the capital plan for infrastructure, how does that inform development and how are they linked together? And not to throw RWSA in the mix, but it's just one that comes to mind, right? What is their capital plan and how does that support strategic density? Um, how does it support sustainability, et cetera, et cetera? Missile's day job is as director of design and development at the University of Virginia Foundation. The foundation is pursuing a rezoning at its North Fork Discovery Park for a potential mixed-use residential complex. If you'd like to know more about capital projects in Albemarle County, keep reading and listening, or you can click on a link in the newsletter. If you'd like to learn more about the Rivanna Water and Sewer Authority's capital improvement program, you can download it in a link in the newsletter. Luis Carazana's day job is at the University of Virginia's Office of the Architect. He's also the at-large member of the Planning Commission. He said he wanted better metrics. And a lot of times we focus on the big picture, but we lose that, that opportunity to say, and we know that we're going in the right direction if we're achieving A, B, C, and D. Yeah, exactly. Um, so, so I would encourage everyone to, to think about that as well as we, as we put this into motion. Planning Commissioner Corey Claiborne said density in the right place can help the county achieve certain goals, but he also acknowledged a tension with those who are pushing back. That's something we have to kind of wrestle to the ground, and I'm not sure it's part of the final deliverable here as much as is there an education sense in this process with the community as we start to step through this? Does it mean it's graphics or visuals? I'm not sure what that answer is yet, but addressing it because I think if we can get our arms and and embrace the strategic density portion, 
I think you can start talking about design importance or that could be a, a major key to affordable housing. Commissioner Dan Bailey said one piece of data is experience that comes from what's been approved and what's actually been built. I live in Belvedere, right? It has a concept. I've been there for nearly 10 years. It has a concept of having a centers, little center community that's been vacant for 10 years, right? And these like, and, and we've done a lot of approving of these like novel neighborhood model density developments and other things where they should have this little like retail or office building. I would really love to know how many of them are actually developed. The next step will be a series of public engagement on these themes as well as the growth management options. Stay tuned to the Week Ahead newsletter so you can make sure you know when the next opportunity to be heard will be. If you're interested in this topic, I highly recommend you invest an hour in the conversation that I just summarized to inform how you might participate. It's only an hour long, there's a lot to learn, and you may as well listen to the conversations that are going on so you can get involved as well. But that is the end of your involvement with this installment of Charlottesville Community Engagement. Thank you so much for being here each and every time you do. And if you've listened all the way through, I bet you nobody has listened to every single one of these. Not even me. Uh, I'm, I'm sure I haven't heard half of these. I hope to have another one out tomorrow, regardless, followed by another on Friday, then the week ahead and the government glance. That last one is a publication of the new 5th District Community Engagement Project that I'm doing, another service of Town Crier Productions, a company formed to keep you in the know. Contributions and payments to Town Crier Productions cover the cost of reporting. That includes a bill I have with the United States for the Public Access to Court Electronic Records site, or PACER. I use the PACER service to stay up to date on federal lawsuits, such as the one former city manager Teron Richardson had filed against the city, or the two court cases that saw a House of Delegates race this year. Helps me stay on top of things so you're on top of things. And if you'd like to support this program, which includes expenses like court reporting, consider a paid subscription through Substack. If you do so, Ting will match your initial payment. And if you sign up for their services through a link in the newsletter, you'll get a free standard install, your second month free, and a $75 downtown mall gift card. Enter the promo code COMMUNITY for the effect to be full. All of the funding goes to ensure I can keep doing the work, which two years ago included bringing the audio from a campaign forum to the public via the Charlottesville Podcasting Network. That was good versus Cameron Webb. That's also a part of Town Crier Productions. There's a lot, I know that. Your support will help me pull all of the pieces together into whatever this all becomes. Of course, music comes from the DC entity that currently goes by the name Vraki, selected randomly from a bin of basement recorded cassette tapes. You can support that work by purchasing the album Regret Everything for whatever you would like to pay. Now, let's get to cleaning those floors. Thanks Thanks for for listening. listening. See you soon.